right on the nail with Chris Wright. I'm Chris Wright and welcome to my podcast, Right on the Nail. Each week, I'm joined by those in the know to discuss items of politics, media, business, sport, and lots more. We alternate between what we call a deep dive, where we gather specific experts on a particular subject, and an overall news round table, where we chew over the biggest issues of the week with big name journalists and decision makers. In this week's episode, we have a fantastic lineup for a deep dive discussion into the government's roadmap out of lockdown. Earlier this week, Boris Johnson unveiled the plan to end England's restrictions by the 21st of June and setting out the four steps for the easing down of the lockdown rules. The first step is planned for March the 8th, when children will be allowed to return to school in the hope that this will kickstart the aim for a full route back to normality by the middle of the summer. Joining me today, we have the editor of the Sunday Express, Mick Booker, economist and business consultant Vicky Price, and The Guardian's science correspondent and freelance reporter, Natalie Grover. Thank you all very much for joining us. Let's get cracking. Right on the Nail with Chris Wright. The general reaction to the roadmap, and this is a roadmap to take us from the bottom of the valley, out of the valley and onto the top of the hill, is that it is still a pretty bumpy road. Did we all like what we heard? Did we all think, yippee, that's great? Or did we think, ooh, that doesn't sound quite as nice as I was expecting? Now, who can lead us off on that? Should we start with Vicky? Sure. It was expected, of course. This is the thing to bear in mind. With the vaccine rollout having proved already to be quite uh, effective and very efficient, people were beginning to wonder, you know, why do we still need all these restrictions if indeed we're going to get all these millions more uh, vaccinated pretty soon uh, and we will uh, therefore have reduced quite a lot the chances of anyone transmitting it and uh, also serious illnesses as well coming out of this. So the, the Prime Minister had to react. Uh, it, it was all sort of semi-leaked anyway in advance as usual. But what is interesting is that there are those five-week intervals, with the exception of the one in March, where within a few weeks you're able to meet a second person outside or perhaps even more and and, and meet sort of family as well, um, perhaps more easily than before at the end of March, um, after the schools open on March the 8th. Um, but the rest is really in five-week intervals. And when you look at that, uh, you begin to wonder, in fact, whether they're needed. And there are already hints that that might uh, perhaps be shortened a little bit. Now, for business, that's good news if it were to happen. But as we can see from this roadmap, for the moment, quite a lot of sectors will still be uh, closed for a while and then open up tentatively. And by that time, there are still serious worries about what the state of the economy will be like. From a, from a business standpoint, I think that's all understandable. From a human being standpoint, do you think people are uh, alarmed that things are as rigidly controlled in terms of the way out of the of the lockdown do you think people are thinking well i thought with the vaccination going so well i thought you know maybe in a few weeks i might be able to do all of these other things that i have to wait until may uh, to do a lot of them michael what do you think in terms of your overall readership were they thrilled or not so thrilled with what they heard 
Well, I think listening to it, for, well, just starting personally with me, I, obviously I'm as frustrated as everyone uh, and I'm keen to get back to my normal life. Dan- dancing naked and drunkenly at a festival this summer is uh, top of my list after the last uh, 18 months uh, or whatever we've all been through. But I think this was quite a sensible plan. Uh, that he put forward. Um, I mean, I, I must admit, feeling slightly emotional when you mentioned around about May, I might be able to go up to uh, uh, to, to Leeds to see my mother uh, at that point. And I'm just thinking, so I've not seen her for over a year. I've not seen my in-laws in the northeast of England because of the various plans uh, since last Christmas. So there's a you know there's a lot of people just like me who are very keen uh, to go out and start lives again, see their loved ones again. But I do think, and going now towards where our readership think about it, all along they've been very keen on the lockdowns. They think they've been a very sensible thing to do. Uh, As long as the government have been supporting families and supporting workers, they think it's the sensible thing to do. Our readership, in particular, they're an older readership as well. So they would have been amongst those who are most vulnerable to the virus. So I think in terms of the readership, and as I say, they're an older readership, they are happy for this to slowly unfold and just see where we're going because they're not, you know, the, the government, you know, Boris Johnson, they haven't got it right all the way along and they're dealing with something that they've never dealt with before. And again, it's slow steps. They think the vaccines are working. Uh, we've had some better news again from another vaccine, Johnson & Johnson. That's proven as though in, in tests over in the States that that's very, very good at stopping hospitalization and death. So we've got more vaccines on the way that we can use, but they just want to see this, this works. They want to see the infections go down. They want to see the deaths go down and the hospitalizations. And then I think, as Vicky says, I think the scope to speed this thing up. But at the moment, I think people are pretty happy with going slowly and see what happens once we open the schools and then take it from there. Yeah, I, I, I suspect you're right. I think that the public are quite sympathetic to the fact that it is a very difficult situation to manage and that it's not there's not going to be some magic uh, cure to it. I think when we went into this almost a year ago, I think there was a general feeling on, on the part of the public that there would be a light bulb moment when yippee, you know, we go straight back to being normal. And I think the reality is, and the realization is that it's not going to be anything like that. It is going to be a gradual one step forward, maybe two steps forward, one step backward. But uh, let's bring in Natalie here from the science standpoint. Where are we at? And and do you think that the the science is dictating Uh, the agenda or is this a a very carefully organized balance between the politics the economics and and the science well i think from the scientific perspective i think a lot of scientists are somewhat relieved and we've seen in the past uh, this government tends to sort of throw caution to the wind and for the first time they seem to be taking a more systematic more uh, somewhat more prudent approach, uh, which is to wait and see the impact of each sort of measure that they lift uh, and then sort of take some time to evaluate what impact that has had on the infection rate, um, et cetera. So I think from that perspective, there is uh, quite a bit of uh, relief. Um, but I think the main bone of contention that we're sort of hearing is on the issue of schools. Um, the fact that we're sort of opening up pretty much everything on the 8th of March um, 
is a worry because um, the the science on you know the 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 impact of schools on the rate of transmission within communities and sort of vice versa is 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 not particularly um, very clear. Well, at least not clear, but maybe there's not there's not enough consensus on it. And um, the issue is really about you know why the government hasn't pushed it to make schools safer. Um, so, for instance, that the the virus is spread through the air, uh, and that's one of the main ways it transmits. Um, and so there hasn't been sufficient effort to uh, improve ventilation in schools. And, you know, we know that structurally you can't do much in, in a very short period of time, but you could bring in particulate air purifiers and things like that. Those are low-cost solutions that could really help and go a long way. Um, and the other thing that I think that isn't uh, being thought of or at least hasn't been publicly spoken about is once we sort of start bringing in these measures, test, trace and isolate becomes incredibly important to make sure, um, you know, new variants, et cetera, aren't popping up um, and people who are expected to isolate are being able to isolate. Um, we know, for instance, that the contact tracing portion of test, trace and isolate is contributing to like two to five percent of bringing infections down. Most of it comes down to isolation and um, you know the, the the track record on that 500 uh, pound payment isn't isn't very good at the moment. So those are sort of the the issues that people are still worried about. But overall, I think scientifically, this roadmap is quite appreciated. Yes, and and with the schools, I think we all agree that schools are are really a priority. And I think the danger is that we do feel that perhaps when all the university students went back in early September, that it did trigger uh, a spike, which was probably already going to happen anyway, but it could have triggered it earlier than it might have happened otherwise. But we do have to, we do have to be very aware that, that, that school children and their education is of paramount importance. I wonder, um, because we know we're safer outdoors than indoors. I wonder if we should be considering running a school term through the summer where people can be outdoors a lot and use that to try and catch up with some of the of what the, the students have missed. Do you, do you think that's realistically possible that, that we, we run a school term through like, you know, mid-June, July and into August? I think that's that's an interesting idea. Um, you know, I'm I'm obviously not a not a teacher myself, and given what teachers have gone through over the last year and a half, I'm not sure whether, you know, that 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 would be feasible just from like a work life balance standpoint. Um, but I think if there's a way to do schooling outdoors, then I think definitely that's something that should be considered. The other thing I forgot to mention earlier was just simple things that can be done to make sure that, you know, new variants and, and transmission pick up, which is to, like we have hygiene standards, um, you know, in, in places where food is served, for instance, we should have some sort of standards for COVID safety. And, uh, you know, a, a part of the government who's in charge of certifying areas uh, as COVID safe, all we've been told so far um, is that, um, you know, this, 
your place of work and schools and food and all of these different sectors need to be COVID safe. But who's really checking? And, you know, what are the things that are expected on a day to day basis? That is is something that's missing. And that I think could go a long way in making sure schools, for instance, uh, are, are safe as well. And how and how realistic is it to to ask all of the kids at school to wear to wear masks, whether it's above a certain age or, or all of them, even a, even down to a five year old in certain circumstances, if it would help if they all wore masks. Surely it's better to be at school wearing a mask than not to be at school at all. Do you uh, do you have a view on that, Mick, then? And what yeah, I suggested well, about schools in the summer? I think in terms of the summer, I don't think you can always rely on the great British weather, can you, in the great British summer? So I think in terms of, you know, there was touching on outside, but I think there is going to be longer school days. I think Gavin Williamson has mooted that. Um, there will be these catch-up uh, classes as well throughout the summer uh, that, we're, that we've been told about. I mean, we, we've had... Um, my daughter's in the first year of sixth form. She had predicted grades for her GCSEs last year. Um, and this year she's doing uh, the first year of A-level. She's going back to school on the 8th. They've been told, we, we got the email today to say that we're getting, uh, there's going to be three tests uh, over the two weeks, the first two weeks, one at home and two at school. So there is, there is a testing regime there. Now, the problem with the testing regime is these lateral flow tests, which is what they're using, there has been some question marks over how effective they actually are and how, um, and how right they are uh, sometimes as well. So there, I, I think there will be, there will be, problems highlighted with that as we go along as you said before it's going to be bumpy and I think every aspect's going to be bumpy but there's testing there there's going to be a lot of pressure on the uh, the teachers as well and when she was going to school um, just in the autumn term she was back for the last five weeks she was back at home for four of those weeks so it's just a case of whether they're going to be in and out in and out again which uh, is, is slightly concerning to me just and my daughter's been one of the lucky ones uh you know she you know she's she managed to be decently uh schooled in the last uh, few months she let she had a predicted GCSEs and she didn't go too far wrong from where we thought she was going to be but there's a lot of kids who are missing a lot of school and I've said this before uh to other people that from where I was from the comprehensive school that I was uh, brought up in uh, up in the northeast of England wasn't the best wasn't the worst but if I'd have missed uh, you know, a year, 18 months of school, uh, say in primary school or secondary school, I don't think I'd be on here talking to you today. I don't think I would have had the breaks. I think I would have got lost somewhere in the system. And a lot of people, and I, and I worry about that for a lot of kids from, you know, working class backgrounds in particular. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's my, my kids are fairly middle class because of, you know, where I am in, in the world and uh, working wise. And they are the lucky ones and, and they've missed out on school. So God help the rest of them. So I think it is key that they go back and we get this sorted successfully because otherwise there's going to be problems for a generation. Vicky, would you agree with that? And, and, and to what extent do you think having kids in school has an impact on the greater economy in terms of allowing the, the parents to get on with their work that they wouldn't normally be able to do? Well, I have to say there had been some um, some concern that perhaps the reason why primary schools in particular, which don't really show very much evidence of spreading the disease, uh, had 
closed until and will be closed until uh, the, the 8th of March has been in order to prevent the parents from going to work and therefore, you know, reducing the spread of the disease that way. I don't think there is a huge amount of evidence from what I understand it for, you know, younger pupils really spreading the disease or even teachers getting it from them. Uh, rather, they seem to be, according to a recent study I read, get uh, the teachers get it from the community. Uh, and perhaps bring it back to school. Um, so yes, allowing the return to normality is going to be you know, very significant. And there's another worry, of course, which is the impact that it has had on women in particular. I mean, we, we've just been hearing a little bit about homeschooling and the problems that uh, the children have with all this. But of course, the parents have been incredibly, um, uh, you know, bearing all this with, with without complaining too much. So uh, there, there has been a huge stress. When you look at uh, women in particular and mothers, they haven't been able to even do, they had great difficulty, or the survey suggests, to do the number of works that, of hours of work that were required of them while also doing all the homeschooling and looking after the house in a different way than was the case before when everyone was out of the house all day. And that, uh, of course, has meant that many of them have either reduced their hours or withdrawn from the market altogether. Uh, and that, of course, has affected also their earning capabilities and, and what it means in terms of people getting into poverty more easily and the impact on their children. And what we've seen, yes, of course, I think we were discussing earlier how, you know, people will be, you know, looking with great joy at the possibility of starting to party again or going to festivals and so on, or even spending some of their money. But what we know is that during this pandemic, something like, you know, an extra three and a half million people um, have got into worse financial difficulty than was the case before, actually in stress. And that has come out of... Uh, I think it's the FCA that has produced this figure, the Financial Conduct Authority, um, from a survey. So uh, there has been a lot of hardship and we mustn't underestimate that. And, and mothers have suffered hugely as a result of this. And there is a concern about what happens to gender equality in the future. We've just had some results suggesting that uh, in the boardrooms, women have done well, but further down, it doesn't look like this is the case. And the pandemic has has accentuated all this. So yes, schools, certainly primary schools should go back as quickly as possible. And I'm glad that they are doing so uh, on March the 8th. What happens, uh, you know, and what the evidence tells you about all the children, I really don't know. But on the primary front, I think that's incredibly good news. Yes, and, I, and you, it's a good point that it does discriminate against the, the, the female work, workers that, you know, they, they have to spend more time at home with the children. They can't do they can't put the same kind of input into their job. And even if they can, there's a suspicion that the employers might feel that they're not able to, and that creates further discrimination. And that is really not helpful at a point in time when I think we were getting to the point of uh, pretty good gender equality when it comes to the workplace. Uh, it, it's probably been quite a significant step backwards for, for women, which is a bad thing. One thing that I did think about when I saw the roadmap and went through it in detail is the fact that the government are still encouraging everybody to work from home for quite a long time I can't remember the exact date that but it's it's there is no real set target for people going back to work work in in your workspace do you think that we're ever going to get back to the point where the government will be encouraging people to go back to work in the in the medium-term future or are we just going to be working from home a lot more in for a long time going forward what do you think about that if it's me you, you were asking i mean what we know is that on march 29th the stay at home rule ends 
So, I mean, that, of course, suggests that you can also... But not the you know, encourage the work. No, but, I agree, but not I agree. encourage the work from home. Uh, I agree, but nevertheless, there isn't another one. You're quite right. There isn't something that says at a particular time you can work, uh, you can do uh, what you were doing before because the, the Freedom Day, if you like, is June the, 11th, the 21st at present. But nevertheless, once it says stay-at-home rule ends, that suggests to me that uh, people might take a different attitude in terms of work. And the reality is that large parts of the economy have continued to operate. When you look at manufacturing, construction, most of the public sector, or a large part of it certainly, has continued. Loads of people outdoors uh, delivering. So I think a substantial part of the economy has continued to function. Quite a lot of people have been uh, going to work. A lot who haven't, of course, have been on furlough. I mean, remember that right now, something like four and a half million people are still on furlough. They had reduced that number quite significantly over the summer, but now they've gone back since the furlough scheme has been extended and it will be extended further. So there's quite a lot of that going on, but there is a wider question as to whether we're going to go back to where we were before. And I think that's quite unlikely. I think uh, not only firms are, are seeing some huge advantages at reducing office space and the cost that that entails, but also flexibility has worked for a number of, uh, of individuals who found it you know, easy to do. The worry about this, and if it carries on like this, is that it has created even greater inequality. We discussed about women, but in reality, when you look at the number of tasks that can be done from home, it has tended to be tasks that are done by people who earn more. So the more you earn, the greater percentage of tasks that you were doing before that can be done from home. And the less you earned, and therefore you were in the gig economy, perhaps, face-to-face, -face yeah. hospitality, the areas that have really lost a lot, a lot of jobs, uh, the less likely you were to be doing those. Those uh, employees, if you like, or people who were working as contractors or self-employed, they will be going back to work. They can't do anything yeah. from home. So you're going to see this disparity actually emerging. Uh, and, and they are the ones, of course, at the lower end who have lost most because many of them are not even entitled to any further yeah, so money. They're, they'll be quite anxious. The ones that are still working not from home, like on building sites and, and so forth, they're, they're basically okay. But the other people in hospitality, as you say, and a lot a lot of other instances where you can't work from home, it is real. It is predominantly in the lower the lower level income bracket. The people that are working from home and it, and seem to be working from home very comfortably and in such a way that they might just want to continue working from home are people like lawyers, accountants, bankers, and uh, people in financial services, that kind of thing. Because as long as you've got decent internet and, and decent equipment, then you can work from home. And they have been working from home quite successfully. And I think what people are finding is that, okay, you're, you're missing maybe, you know, the pint after work with your mates, and you might be missing, you know, sharing a lunch or a sandwich or something. But you're, what you're not what you're happy to miss is the long commute and, and uh, you know, which can be expensive and time consuming. And, and for a lot of people, I think, it, you know, the world going forward will be, will be slightly different, but as you say, it's, it, it is definitely, you know, economically and, and, uh, and level of employment uh, based inequality here. Mick, what, what about you and, in terms of working from home and your take on it in terms of running a newspaper? How does that work, working from home? 
Well, we didn't think we'd be able to do it, but we did pretty successfully, um, and it has it has worked. However, you know, journalism it relies on contacting people, meeting people, and you can do it over Zoom. You can use your phone, but it's you know you need that face to face contact. And you know, as we move on through this, hopefully that'll come back. I think you know newspapers like any other business now from now on has looked at this and said, well, we don't all need to be in the office at all times. And sometimes there is that that problem of presenteeism as well. So we've kind of got rid of that, I think. So there will be a blend of working from home and working uh, at the office, I think. And I, th- I think a lot of people have enjoyed it. I have, as, as Vicky says, it's sort of affected uh, different sectors in different ways. And there's been sometimes in editorial conference we've been talking about stories and talking about how you know the you know back in the government in many ways about staying at home and keeping lockdowns going but then you have to think of those people who are being you know the hospitality industry who are being furloughed all those people who work in that industry who may not have a job by the end of this as uh, if if the lockdown carries on uh, and you have to think of them because here we are, um, and let's say, I've said this in editorial conference, most of us are very, you know, we've got middle class jobs, we get in our salary put into our account every month and we can work from home, but there's a lot of people who can't and they need, this, they need these vaccines to work, they need the economy to get going again. Then people will move back into the cities. I mean, it's great news. There'll be no bankers knocking around. They can stay at home. We don't need them knocking around the city anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, leave them for leave them for us. We've seen how they behave in the pubs around yes. uh, where I work. So we, that's good in, in many ways. But I think a lot of people, we're social animals. We will be back out there. We do like hanging out in cities. We do like meeting people again so i think there will be people who come back there will be people who want to stay at home it's it, i think this has the one good thing from this pandemic is that it has given people an insight into better life balance uh, you know i'm getting on with, with my family far better than i ever did when i used to come in every night 10 11 o'clock at night full of hell after a day at work now uh, I, I have to uh, you know regulate my behavior at home and it seems to have made me a slightly better person so there has been some some good bits but i think we need to see our city centers come back we need to see our towns back again we are social animals and uh, let's hope that this roadmap gets us to there on june the 21st yes now natalie what what can go wrong with the roadmap what from a scientific standpoint i mean is there is there something here that could derail our little bus you know on its way out of this this deep valley that we've been in is it could it be the various mutations that the South African, the Brazilian or whatever mutation, could it be problems with the vaccinations not working against either these mutations or further mutations? What is the scientific side of of where we stand with this? Yeah, so I mean, there are a couple of things that we need to watch out for. One is that um, although the government has said vaccine update has generally been quite good, we've, we've heard great numbers. Um, there is, you know, certain parts of the population that seem to be a little bit sceptical. So I'm thinking ethnic minorities and certain parts of the NHS for, for some reason. Um, so if vaccine uptake is not, it does not continue to be great as, uh, in, in people who are perhaps in some ways most at risk, then that could obviously derail um, this plan. The other thing is that 
you know, we know that um, these vaccines are helping reduce severe disease and hospitalizations. The data is pretty clear from clinical trials, and we've recently had some real-world data from from Public Health England um, that, that suggests that is the case. Um, but the issue is that if by lifting these measures we do see a considerable uptake in transmission, what that could mean is that we do have the development of new variants that could develop what we call escape mutations. So, for instance, we do know that the, the, the variant discovered in South Africa has had some effect on the efficiency of these vaccines, uh, the existing vaccines. Now, if another one develops and sort of takes hold, um, that could definitively sort of derail uh, the campaign. And then the third thing, and this is slightly more sort of a long-term thing that, that could potentially be an issue, is that these vaccines haven't been tested adequately in children and teenagers. So we could have a situation where later this year, most adults are vaccinated, and uh, but the, the children and teenagers will you know, be the reservoirs uh, of infection. So we could have an uptake in transmission uh, through that. Um, we also don't know enough about whether these vaccines actually have an impact on transmission. Um, there is some encouraging data. Uh, and if we look back at history, you know, you don't need to have a vaccine that thwarts transmission completely to contain an outbreak, but obviously that would help. So there are a few unknowns, a few uh, bumps along the road, but as long as we keep an eye on things um, and take things one step at a time, as this roadmap suggests, then we are, we should be in a, in a better shape uh, than we were, say, um, this time last year and beyond. Do you, do you think there's a time when we will be vaccinating young people and maybe maybe like the under 30s or, or even below that? Or do you think the feeling is that we don't vaccinate people of uh, that are, that are at that age, because if they get the virus, they probably won't even know they've got it anyway, and they'll develop their own immunity that you know that way without being uh, vaccinated. Which, which is more likely to happen? Well, so the, this is a bit. I actually worked on a story regarding this specifically, and it's a bit of a mixed bag. So some scientists um, say that if we want to to really stamp this out, this disease out, we should be inoculating everybody. Uh, but there is, you know, if we look at other infectious diseases, we don't necessarily vaccinate the entire population. We tend to vaccinate a segment of the population, the ones, the people that are most at risk. And, and, and you know, it, it works out fairly well. So as it stands, um, the scientists that I have spoken to suggest that given the, the how far this virus has spread um, across, you know, populations, not just within this country, but all over the world, really. Um, the expectation is that we will have to vaccinate the young. Um, but essentially, when, when we talk about the young, you know, it's teenagers and sort of the not the very youngest. I think it'll it'll be sort of first teenagers and then, you know, you go down that that route. Um, so as it stands, it you know, there isn't much of a consensus, but the the intuitive um, expectation is that we will have to vaccinate everybody, uh, including the young. Uh, the trials have begun. 
some trials have begun. Uh, we expect to see some data coming in by the summer. Uh, and I think if uh, the data proves that these vaccines are safe and effective, then we might uh, begin to inoculate by the end of this year, early next year. But on the whole, we don't, young people don't get the flu jabs. It's the, the flu jabs are really, you know, the people that, that are at risk from the flu, which seems to be the same kind of age group for the people that are most at risk from COVID. So what you're saying is that, you know, unlike a flu jab, where we don't bother to with young people with this one we may have to eventually uh, vaccinate all all people of all ages in order to get the whole of the society free from from the virus right and i think this is this is it comes all comes back fundamentally to this question of transmission so if we find out uh, later down the line that these vaccines aren't very good at stopping the spread of the disease as it stands we know that they stop us from getting ill, uh, severely ill and dying from the disease, but you could still sort of get the infection with the virus, uh, get infected with the virus um, theoretically, but just not fall ill if you've been vaccinated. So that question hasn't definitively been answered yet. Um, and if it turns out that you can still spread the disease, even though you are unlikely to fall badly ill, then that could mean that you could still be spreading the disease. And we do know, for instance, that even if people don't get severely ill or die, you have things like long COVID and other sort of long-term conditions that you can have by just harboring the virus. Like you said, yes, we don't inoculate uh, young people for the flu. Scientists have said that um, if we do end up inoculating people for this virus, it will be the exception, not the rule. And do we need to get to the point where the whole of the third world and like every country in Africa is generally vaccinated in order to suppress the virus in the UK. How much of a threat is it to the UK that there will be countries that will lag well behind the UK in terms of vaccine take-up? Right, and that's, that's a really great question because I think that's sort of the main critique of so-called vaccine nationalism, which is that, you know, we'll sort our own people out and everybody else can sort of figure it out uh, themselves. And, you know, we just want to take care of our own people. And I think in, in some ways that's a very flawed argument because a country like ours, um, you know, we have so much international travel. So uh, eventually helping ourselves is going to be great for us in the short term, but in the long term, uh, if, the continue, if the disease continues to rage um, uh, abroad, then that almost you know, definitely will come back to us. Um, there's also the the worry that um, the more transmission you have, the more likely the virus is able to uh, develop sort of worrying mutations. And so you could have the situation again where we've inoculated ourselves well and good, and then some horrible mutation comes, you know, emerges somewhere else and then comes into our population. And then our vaccines don't uh, sort of provide that kind of protection that we hope it does. So we're then sort of stuck with dealing with the same problem from from a slightly different angle that's a very very good point that that you you can't just operate on a national basis and that even if we're completely vaccinated in the uk and completely clear of it that and and a certain country in africa or countries in africa aren't that whilst it lasts there it may you may you might say well it's not going to have much impact on us but of course it could do because it could mutate there and then come back and and 
bang us in the face as a mutated version <laughs> coming into the country. Vicky, holidays, when do you think you're going to be able to realistically have a foreign holiday? And do you think that, that vaccination passports are going to be an integral part of people travelling going forward? Well, that's an incredibly interesting question. As we know, Michael Gove has now been uh, put in charge, uh, now he doesn't have the EU remit anymore, to, to look at uh, the possibility of vaccine passports, uh, which, of course, uh, in, are almost like a sort of identity card, which uh, the Brits generally don't like. But quite a lot of other countries to which we might be travelling do like. Um, they have identity cards. They would very much like us to have a vaccine passport as well. And, and one of the ones that has made it very clear and has been uh, arguing that the whole of the EU should do the same is the country I originally come from, which is Greece. Uh, you probably noticed front page news today in some of the papers is the fact that Greece is considering opening their borders to Brits as early as May, uh, assuming we, ha we have a passport uh, proving or at least some, some digital or perhaps not even digital, uh, maybe even paper, but I very much doubt it those days, um, some digital proof possibly that we have been vaccinated. Now, the question is the first dose, the second dose as well. And given that we have got to uh, the, the decision here in the UK to allow for a three-month gap between the first and the second, who knows when the people who are getting the vaccine now uh, may be able to go uh, to wherever they may want to in the summer. But as you've noticed, the data suggests that everyone has rushed in the moment this um, timetable was published to book holidays in sunny places, including Greece, it seems. So we've seen the shares of airline companies go up as a result. Uh, in some cases, I think the increases have been something like 600% uh, above where they were uh, a year ago, or, or perhaps it was 600% above where they were before the announcement of uh, of the roadmap. That's something I haven't looked at in detail, I have to admit. Um, but I should think that pretty much in the summer, that would be uh, you know, quite possible for a number of people to do that, assuming the countries one is going to open the doors to us. And I think that's the important thing. One point to make about what uh, um, Natalie was saying in relation to uh, vaccines. And that is, of course, we would be worrying about mutations and what that might mean. And uh, businesses will be worried about uh, suddenly having to lock down again if anything like that happened. But given how amazingly well the whole vaccine development has been and how fast it, it, the, the actual science seems to be moving, uh, I have been reading that there may well be a booster vaccine that we're all going to be getting, uh, including the younger people, by which I mean certainly all adults who are meant to be getting a vaccine by the end of July, but it might move further down after tests. But a booster vaccine that we will be getting, which will cover you against all mutations or loads of mutations that may come. If that were to happen, then obviously the, the future looks considerably brighter in terms of being able to go okay. to places uh, and uh, not fear hugely about being infected or bringing anything back here. And that, I think, will be very important also by the opening up of the economy more generally uh, and gives the confidence perhaps to people to, to start hiring again and investing. And there's already some sign that... Businesses are prepared to start hiring again, even though we still have so many people in furlough. But there are some surveys that suggest that the mood is changing. We had very, very bad business 
confidence indicators at the beginning of the year. So January wasn't particularly good. Uh, but the consumer seems to be feeling slightly more optimistic. There's all this money out there they can spend on holidays or other ways. Hopefully not all spent abroad, so that some of it can be spent in the UK as well. Uh, the, the Bank of England estimates we have 100 billion to spend for the moment. By June, it could be 250 billion that we haven't spent by just saving it because we haven't got anywhere to spend it. And they also think that businesses have about 100 billion in cash that they could be investing or doing something with. Um, if that were indeed to happen, then we'll see a reasonable bounce back after. But I think it much depends on what uh, Natalie was saying about the virus itself and really feeling that the vaccines have controlled it yeah, and yeah, yeah. anything that suddenly suggests any you know, going back to what we've been seeing in the last few months would be disastrous, I think, for businesses. I, I think we, we have to manage ourselves out of this in, in a very sensible way, which which right for, for human beings, right for their enjoyment of life and right for the economy as well. And tourism is something that works both ways. It's not just British people going to spend, you know, their hard-earned, cash in in spain but there's lots of foreign foreigners love to come to england england is a, a very very important tourist destination so it does work both ways and the idea of passports vaccination passports i take your point that the british don't like this i remember when we tried to introduce uh, id cards there was a huge amount of resentment which is quite strange because i can't see why anyone would resent having to have haven't have an ID card, then it's quite normal in most of the world. But I, I remember, you know, years ago when you'd go to places ab abroad in Africa, Southeast Asia and so forth, you would have to have a, a, a typhoid or a yellow fever or, or something like that. You'd have to have a vaccination, maybe malaria or something as well. And you'd have to show that in order to get into the country. So it's, it's not something that's entirely new. And I think if we have to do that in order to open up the borders and let people come in and out of England and the UK in general, uh, then I think it, it's a price worth paying because it, it has so many more benefits. It's not, it, it's not the worst you know, imposition on your freedom. Would you agree with that, Michael? It's something that you could cope with to get your family on holiday abroad this summer if that's what you wanted to do? I think as the vaccinations roll out over the next few years across the world, I think the vaccine passport becomes more of a short term thing that's necessary. I think as over the next couple of years, the virus, if the, the vaccines do work, as we're told they will, it will fade into the background. And as Boris Johnson said this week, and I thought was very key, is this idea that we're never going to have zero COVID. We have to live with it and it will be a, in that manageable way that we deal with the flu. So I think in the short term, I think the British people love that blast of air when the airport, uh, when the airplane door opens at Heraklion Airport in Crete. You get the, the hairdryer heat in your face and then 20 minutes later you're having a pint of mythos. I think we will waive our civil liberties for a couple of summers in terms of a vaccine passport in return for that because for the last as i said year a lot of people haven't had a, a summer holiday that and christmas are the two things that we hold very dear uh, the the british family is uh, and so i think you know there is these question marks over whether we're going to need them for the long term but in the short term I think most people will go along with them. They, they will want to um, show people that they are, you know, they have been vaccinated. They're safe to be wherever they are. Um, and I think most people will back it. I'm certainly know that express readers at the moment 
uh, who have been there the, again. They've got a bit more money in their pocket the, the, amongst the baby boomers, uh, and they like their holidays. So I think they're more than willing to get these vaccine passports, so they can go off and have some of the freedoms that they had before. And just going back to what Natalie and Vicky were saying about um, uh, the vaccines across the world, you know, today we've seen that Ghana's become the first recipient of uh, the vaccine distributed by COVAX, which is the Global Vaccine Sharing Initiative. So already that's up and running. So already these vaccines are going around the world uh, thanks to more developed countries such as ours in America. So hopefully it will only be a short-term thing or relatively short-term thing and something that we're prepared for. When do we think we'll be travelling? June, July, August, September? When do you think we'll actually, vaccine passport or not, be, be back to reasonable, normal life in terms of travel? I think it's going to be July or August is going to be the peak time for it, isn't it? I think... Uh, Again, it's this slow steps, this slow unwrapping of the economy and, uh, and then the roadmap as well. And I think we will, it'll be later in the summer where most people are going out, the July, the August, um, just when we know everything is, fingers crossed, working out with the vaccinations. I think what it all depends on, and you could see that from Boris's announcement, is the vaccinations. Are they being effective in terms of stopping transmission? Are they being effective in stopping hospitalizations? Are they being effective in terms of death? I think that's the key thing. That's why they're doing it so slowly. So ideally, I'll be on the beach in Greece in August. And will you still be reading a newspaper with COVID on the front page of the newspaper then? Well, hopefully not as much. You know, we At the moment, we're doing at least six pages a day, uh, not including the front page. It'll be nice to do newspapers without COVID for a while. I remember going back to Brexit, we thought, what would we re report on after Brexit? And then, unfortunately, we got this nasty surprise uh, last year. Hopefully there won't be another nasty surprise. There won't be any more mutations of this thing that are particularly serious or will mutate out with the... Uh, uh, what the, the current vaccines can do. So hopefully it'll be a story, you know, obviously we're always going to have the long term of this and it's going to cause a huge damage to generations to come in the economy that's going to need a lot of repairing, but hopefully it won't be front page news this time next year. I think it's been announced that both the Reading Festival and the Leeds Festival will go ahead. One for you, Mick, that you were quite keen to, to, to go to one of the festivals. There won't be Glastonbury, but that's a good sign. When do we, all three of us, think that not, and the question isn't when will we have a reasonable kind of life, but when do you think how far forward that life will go right back to effectively where it was from before COVID existed? Are we talking months or years? Are we talking ever? You know, after we get through this winter, uh, we'll see where we are, because you can see Boris was still not quite sure he wants this to be an irreversible uh, roadmap out of this. But as he said, there is still clearly worries uh, about what this uh, virus can do. And if there's going to be more pressure again, if there's another wave next winter. So we may end up having a good late summer, uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of nerves, both politically and amongst the medical community to see and scientific community as to where this virus is going. Hopefully we'll get some good data over the next few months 
and we won't have that worry back in the winter. So I think there's going to be worries all the way through this year. I hope sometime around about this time next year, I can see in, just in my mind the way that things are going. Then we may be back to some permanent sense of normality. But I think we've just got to see where we're going for these next few months and, and how the vaccines work. I think it's all on the vaccines. Yeah, I, I kind I, of agree with you timing-wise. Uh, can I ask Natalie, what's your, how would you answer that question from a scientific yeah, it, standpoint? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, it's all dependent on how the, the next few months go. Um, but I think there are a few key things that this pandemic will leave uh, behind. One is um, hand hygiene. I think... I don't think that that should be um, that we should go back to not washing our hands as frequently. I, I think that that's something that um, perhaps should be, you know, one of the good things that this that this horrible virus, um, uh, a habit that this horrible virus sort of puts us into. Um, the other thing is masks. Um, so if we look at Asian um, countries, you know, uh, whenever there's winter or they're traveling and stuff, a lot of Asian countries. Uh, even before this pandemic, were enthusiastic about mask wearing. And we can see some of that data even sort of show up in, in this country. So, for instance, we haven't had a single flu case at all this year. Um, so that basically January onwards. So that, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, the, and obviously we've been in lockdown pretty much most of this uh, entire time, uh, including the wearing of masks. So I think those are some of the things that sort of might stick around uh, even once we sort of get rid of things like social distancing and um, so some of the other measures we have on at the moment. I have to agree with Mick. I think this time next year will probably be the right time to start assessing whether we we can come back to sort of normal as we as we thought of being uh, before this pandemic ever existed. And I don't want to be uh, Debbie Downer, but it's 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 hardly the case that this is likely to be sort of the last epidemic or pandemic of our generation or, or of our times um the way that we are sort of penetrating wildlife habitats um it, it suggests that there will at some point be another big outbreak of of this kind we don't know when um we don't know uh, to what extent but there is a very good chance that that would be the case well you're right and in, and in our lifetime we'll always realize that that threat exists and i think again you're absolutely right we don't need to go back to forgetting hand hygiene we don't need to go back to shaking hands they don't shake hands in a lot of southeast asia or asia in general you get used to when you travel there seeing people going through airports wearing masks it's not the end of the world i think a lot of this will carry on into this new future and if that's the the, the only price we have to pay in order to go back to to normal it's it's for me a price worth paying would you agree with that vicky I think so. And I, I, in fact, I agree. I agree 100 percent that uh, probably that's how we're going to have to learn to live, including, of course, being possibly more careful how we wash hands and so on. And it's interesting that quite a lot of diseases were spread and people were dying in hospitals because of bad hygiene. That seems to have gone down from that particular type of, of uh, sort of infections that you can catch, uh, given all the COVID precautions, uh, we seem to have reduced that number quite significantly, but there are going to be all sorts of long-term problems we need to, or, or issues rather, which will mean that perhaps we think differently about all sorts of 
uh, areas. Um, we're going to have to deal, of course, with mental health. How do we spend a little bit more money on that and worrying about uh, you know, lo- long COVID, not just physically, but also mentally? What it has meant for the education system? We talked a lot about schools and how much children have missed out and what we need to do to catch up. Lots of lives have been very disrupted. The older generation has managed it reasonably well, I think, even though there are problems of loneliness for the, some of the older people. Uh, but the younger generation has had you know, almost a couple of years disrupted quite significantly. What happens next and how do we make up for it. But I think there are wider issues such as do we now accept that the role of the state is a much greater one than we had accepted before? Uh, the government has borrowed huge amounts of money. It's not good to pay those back in any time soon. Nobody wants to see austerity again. We just accept that uh, we're just going to live with a higher debt and that the government needs to be much more involved in both infrastructure side but also ensuring that services are kept uh, at good levels or the National Health Service is probably funded. I think COVID has shown quite a lot of the weaknesses of the system, but it's also shown ways of getting around them. So they're both negative and positive issues. And also because we changed our habits uh, quite significantly, uh, we need to worry a little bit about, in, well, a lot about inequality that I mentioned before, but we also need to think a bit about, you know, the structure of work in the future. We've already had the Uber uh, issues of, uh, you know, workers needing to have some rights rather than just being on zero hour contracts and completely insecure employment. I think the, the views of people is changing in terms of the type of support that needs to be there. I think it has done a lot more than just uh, you know, affect does physically. It has really changed the way people think. And uh, my question is whether that change of thought is going to be sustained. I think in a number of areas it will. So it will be a different future. And I think probably uh, a better one once we sort the, the, the actual pandemic issues out. Yes, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, nothing's going back to completely normal and there, you raise a lot of important questions there. But I think... I think we are on the way out of it. I think we might need to manage our way out of it, but I think we can do that. I think we've had a great conversation. I think, I think we've nailed it. So thank you all very, very much for participating. Well done. I think that was an excellent uh, discussion. Right on the Nail with Chris Wright. You've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Thank you to my guests, Mick, Vicky and Natalie for a brilliant conversation. And thank you to you all for tuning in to listen. Tweet us at Right on the Nail with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, rightonthenail.fm. Remember, there's a new episode every Friday. So catch you next time right on the nail. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Listener.